0: Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we speak to higher education thought leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of this industry and pick their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, Evolution Editor in Chief and Illumination host Amrit Alawalia is joined by Brian Ellis. The Associate Dean of Academic Programs Administration for Laveau College of Business and Executive Director of Goodwin College of Evening and Professional Studies at Drexel University. The two discuss the culture divide between CE units and the traditional university and how enabling a la carte pricing can boost access to programs.
1: Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me on the Illumination Podcast. I appreciate it. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Now, we're talking a little bit about sort of the the connectivity between continuing education, the main campus. And, you know, one of the themes that we covered in this year's State of CE was that collaboration between, call them what you will, I think we're, we're using PCO units, generally speaking now. So professional continuing and online education units and main campus. Why is there generally this cultural divide between CE and what we consider like the traditional university?
2: You know, I think that's an interesting question. You know, to be honest with you, I just think uh, folks have a hard time at a traditional uh, university or college uh, demystifying what CE really is. Um, continuing education, you know, to me is uh, it's different, and and I think uh, we haven't done a really good job being able to express how these markets are different. You know, they're not in a competition, but they really look into uh, appeal to a different audience. And I think sometimes as traditional space, they see that co- as competition and something that hasn't been widely
1: embraced. That's, you know, it's interesting you bring up competition because cannibalization of enrollments is one of these topics that keeps coming up when you look at like why, why there's a divide between CE and the main campus is concerns around cannibalization. What's your take on the concept of, of enrollment cannibalization?
2: Yeah, I think everybody in higher education, they're fully aware of the uh, demographic cliff that we're about to uh, embark upon. Um, And because of that, I think folks are becoming really uh, territorial. Mm -hmm. And to avoid or eliminate some of that cannibalization, you know, I think they try to prop themselves up in spaces, whereas they probably um, aren't best served as uh, content area experts. You know, everybody wants to uh, start to, um, you know, do things that we historically Historically, have done, and school professional schools, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, non credit space, uh, 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 certificate space, um, you know that that type of area. Because I think, and 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 their warped view of how we're doing things that would uh, eliminate, I guess, some of the cannibalization that may be happening.
1: I'll talk, i I it concerns me when we talk about the idea of cannibalization because what. Here's what I'll tell you. What confuses me about the topic, and and I, I, I'm actually really hoping you can tell me that I'm full of it if I'm honest. Because when I think about cannibalization, what comes to mind for me is this idea that you know, well, we're going conti- to we're going to continue offering a thing that doesn't suit the needs of the majority of folks. Because if you were to offer something that served them the way they wanted to be served, they would do that one instead. And I'd rather that folks enrolled in my traditional offering that doesn't necessarily meet their needs or that isn't as flexible as what they're looking for, because that's what we've always done. So that's, when I hear cannibalization, sort of that's what comes to mind is almost this voluntary approach where we're deciding to to put folks through a stream that doesn't necessarily serve them best. Is that like what? What's your take on that? Like when when you hear like that description of cannibalization, does that jive with what you see? Like how does that fit?
2: Yeah, I think uh, again it goes back to uh, you know helping uh, you know different units and and and, and schools uh, demystify. I, you know, mm. I think uh, when I think of cannibalization, you know, to me, you know, and and again I'll use uh, you know myself as an example. So I have a pretty unique role, right? I'm an associate dean at a business school. And I'm also an executive director for a college of professional studies. You know, for me, you know, I, I do believe there are two very distinct audiences that we're attracting based on the services and the programs that we can provide, you know, so being in the business school space, you know, I think, you know, a lot of folks within that business school space would, um, you know, kind of make the assumption that a school of professional studies could not offer business-like programs or a business-like um certificates where in actuality they really can Mm -hmm. so i i think what's been happening is you know they assume that if i had an interest in you know let's say creating a a, maybe a a business type program or certificate that doesn't exist in the uh, business school that you know um there's not a market for that in the uh, school of professional study space. And that's really not the case. So I think they look at, you know, that almost as a threat uh, Mm. attempting to cannibalize kind of their portfolio of offerings, where I don't see it that way. I see it as being, uh, uh, creating access and opportunities for a different subset of students or different population. Um, So, you know, usually when we start having those conversations about, well, if you did X, Y, and Z, you could cannibalize my more traditional uh, business program. And that, in actuality, is just not true. Absolutely. And
1: you've, you've mentioned that your your joint role is one that is really unique. Super interesting. Um, bearing responsibilities, both in sort of professional education and the business school. As you've grown into this joint role, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's been about a year and a half, two years that you've held both positions. Yeah, what are some like the, months? Yeah, there you go. So what are, what are the intersections that you've seen so far between those two worlds?
2: You know, I think for me, the fortunate thing was, you know, I've been able to really, um, you know, demystify. You know, I'll be honest with you. I, the, the bulk of my career has been in business schools and business education. And, um, you know, but now moving over to the uh, School of Professional Studies, um, you know, I've been able to see, uh, in my opinion, a, a opportunity. An opportunity for collaboration and and partnerships. And again, being able to make that distinction between the two different markets. You know, I think uh, a more traditional business degree versus some of the things that we can do in the School of Professional Studies that'd be more geared towards, let's say, a community or workforce development. Um, Now, having said all that, I I do believe, uh, you know, if we do this properly with the appropriate collaboration and partnerships at any institution, you know, you can make all of these things work. And I think we all can uh, benefit uh, from, um, you know, this type of cross collaboration. And, you know, I'm in a fortunate place where, you know, that position in the business school and the school of professional studies, you know, we're kind of seeing that come together,
1: which I can really appreciate. I mean that that is it's it's something that that really interests me because that's there, it's always seemed like such a great place for collaboration between professional ed and, and and the business school because there is so much intersection between serving, you know, folks that are trying to get on a career pathway, serving folks that are mid-career, creating, you know, graduate programs and certificate for folks that are that are in executive roles. What are some of the, I guess, the low-hanging fruit or early wins that you saw when you stepped into, the, into this joint position and started facilitating these collaborations?
2: Yeah, I think first and foremost, making a distinction between, uh, you know, in the business uh, world, what we call executive education, right, versus workforce development. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, again, you know, we talk about the uh, differentiation in two distinct markets, and I don't think, um, you know, I think historically, you know, we try to, we lumped all of those different uh, non-traditional students or prospective students in the same bucket, and they really shouldn't be. You know, so for me, that was really eye-opening up front, you know, being able to understand uh, the distinction between working in a corporate space that you would see in executive education versus a community uh, government space uh, on the workforce development side. And I think making that distinction helps, again, demystify, um, you know, some of the uh, the charges and the missions from these distinct populations in colleges and schools.
1: What are some of the similarities between the expectations of a learner that's coming in uh, as sort of a mid-career or late-career professional looking for Uh, an ongoing education opportunity uh, and someone who's coming in sort of at at the start of their career and looking for that foundational education experience, like what, where did the, where did the student uh, experience expectations intersect and where do they diverge?
2: Yeah, I think uh, as far as, um, you know, commonalities between the groups, you know, obviously, um, you know, in the, um, you know, and again, kind of the world that I sit in, you know, on the business side of the house, I'm really dealing with undergrad, a more traditional uh, population. And, you know, I can I would tell you that the needs uh, for that population is very different from on the school of professional study side. You know, typically, um, you know, as far as diversions, schools of professional studies. Um, you know, you would have a student say, hey, I'm interested in this program X. And, and right now, like for program X for us would we'll be more of like a generalist degree. I, you, know, you know, I think what's really interesting in all of this space that we're talking about is that, you know, students, uh, particularly in schools of professional studies, you know, I mean, lifelong learning is for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. we always continue learning. But, you know, I, I, I really learned and found out that they already have a niche or some real experience uh, you know, maybe they kind of, um, you know, dipped their toes into uh, higher education previously. You know, the, the demands of family life and work life, things make things a bit more challenging. And, you know, these students are really coming back, coming back to, uh, you know, receive those uh, diplomas or, or those uh, four-year degrees. Uh, having said that, you know, on the professional studies side of the house, it, uh, you know, kind of forced us to be a lot more flexible. Uh, It it forces us to uh, be able to customize. And then one thing I think we don't talk about enough of is, you know, in my opinion, I think uh, this should be differential tuition. You know, I think the the needs of those students in a more traditional setting versus those in a, um, you know, a professional study setting are extremely different. You know, I mean, we can look at things, even if you look at the full-time versus part-time rate, but I think as institutions, you know, we should really you know, and sometimes when you talk about tuition differential becomes a dirty word, you know, you start thinking about, well, you know, you're going to, um, you know, as far as quality and, and things of that nature are going to be, are going to suffer because of, you know, maybe that marketing or that messaging. But again, I think it, it really drives home the, the difference between these different populations and different markets. And I think as a university or an institution, if you can really identify some of those differences, I think uh, there'll be uh, greater synergies across the board that would allow us to, to just continue educating students regardless of what kind of uh, form or platform that they're they're coming in at. And I know that was a long-winded answer.
1: <laughs> no, it, I think it, it's interesting, right? Cause what you're framing out is that when we look at, when we look at like, I guess, sticker price or look at the, the cost as a, as an absolute, we, we kind of take our eye off the ball when it comes to the various line items that actually make it up. And once you start looking at that more specific uh, that more tailored way, you recognize that there are certain things that a certain learner might need that you know, a traditional learner might need that a non-traditional student wouldn't. And by the same token, there are things a non-traditional student might need like, like access to childcare that a right. traditional learner might not. So it allows you to create pricing strategies that are more specific to the learners you're serving. And like, how far away from, are we from a model that actually allows for like a la carte pricing for, uh, for access to programming, like, like what we're talking about here?
2: You know, I, that's a tough question. You know, I think I've been in education, uh, higher education for over 20 years now. And uh, you probably know as well as I do that it takes a while for uh, things to change in this space. <laughs> you know, but, but I think, yeah. you know, a, a podcast like this, I think people like you champions of these, you know, this thought, this type of thought leadership is going to be really important. And, you know, for me, I've been kind of leveraging these dual roles that I have to really help others across the university see that, see the, um, you know, see how we need to be more transformational. You know, we can't continue to do what we've always done, right, just because we've always done them that way. You know, I, I do believe, especially, you know, I talked about the demographic shift and and the competition for students. I, I think we need to be, quite frankly, you know, more assertive and again, transformational in how we approach higher education. And hopefully it starts with my voice, but voices like mine, that's going to uh, kind of uh,
1: help that uh, message really resonate. Let me ask you this then. And, and, you know, if, if you, I'm going to ask you for three things and if there aren't three things, that's okay. But I'm curious, as you think about like our transformational pathway, what are the three things that to your mind, we should be trying to pursue as a post-secondary space that, that's starting to adopt these principles of lifelong learning? Like, what should institutions be trying to make part of their DNA to, to transition to this environment where we are serving more diverse populations, who are looking for different kinds of learning at different stages of their lives?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, one thing that really comes to mind, we've kind of talked about a little bit, uh, differential tuition. You know, I, again, I think that would be a place to start. You know, you talk about access and opportunity. Um, I think that would be a nice place for institutions to really start uh, to, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, be transformational. The other thing for me that I've seen, uh, another thing that I've seen that's been happening is, uh, you know, content area experts. You know, you know, again, a lot of the work that I do is in the student services space. And um you know, working with, uh, you know, academic advisors, uh, folks in programming, uh, career services. And, you know, I think, again, it's, you know, having experts in those particular fields, I think are helpful. When I say fields, particularly on the adult learner or non-traditional student side of the house, because again, the needs, the desire, the wants uh, are very different for that population. So as opposed to saying, hey, you know, you can advise a, a, a traditional student the um, same way you can t- advise a non-traditional student just doesn't work anymore. And we need to make sure that we provide the uh, skills and, and the competencies for these uh, folks in the student services space to be able to do that. So those are two things that uh, come to mind uh, that I would want to see um, kind of somewhat um, shift a bit. I, I, get, I think one of the other things too is maybe the, um, the pipeline to education. You know, you know, have really serious conversations with uh, ourselves as institutions, and uh, where we can really inform people that there's multiple ways to, um, you know, kind of uh, conclude this journey. You know, I know in the old days, you know, if you told a person at a high school, like maybe you should consider the community college route or a different route to, you know, you know, maybe a couple years you could. Um, you could, um, you know, work on some of your general education courses and then transfer to a four-year institution, and that was somewhat taboo. You know, I've dealt with students over the years that I, I just can't do that. But until we can really, um, you know, I, I don't think a traditional four-year school for a lot of folks um, would just work, just because of again the customization that we're talking about. You know, the need to explore different majors. You know, I, I think if we kind of look at the path. Uh, or means to an end and completing a four-year degree, I think we need to be more open and willing to identify different paths for uh, all students. And I think that's something that fundamentally, um, as a society, that we should really start to consider.
1: It's a fascinating thought because we really have made accessing and pursuing education the student's problem. And I'm not, you know, what I the like, problem is maybe the wrong word, but it's really the responsibility of the learner to find the offering, to make sure it fits, to find a pathway to access it, to make sure that every course that they're taking aligns with an end goal Um, you know, if they want to come back, it's really their responsibility to find a pathway back. And to your mind, there's, there needs to be more of, of a responsibility on the part of the institution to create those on ramps, to bring people back in as they continue down their life's journey.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I'm really excited about over in Goodwin College here at Drexel University is that, um, you know, know, I'm working right now with my team on developing what we call these uh, high school modules, right? And again, understanding kind of where we are as a society, you know, everybody's not going to obtain a four-year college degree. We need to recognize that and understand that. But I do believe there's still a role in higher education to support those students as well. You know, so the high school modules that we're, um, you know, in the process of drafting are in really four distinct areas that would help high school students kind of make those decisions. If they want to pursue higher education, it could help there. If they want to go into a vocation, it could help there. If they want to go into uh, their professional careers, we can help them do that. They want to do military. It can do all of that for, you know, all of the above, pretty Mm -hmm. much. You know, those modules, in my estimation, would include things like power skills. No matter what role or industry or what you decide to do upon graduation, I think we all need the ability to communicate and present and, and, and critical things, you know, those types of things. So that's one of my modules. Have another module on career readiness, you know, making sure that we're preparing you for life after high school. Again, albeit in higher education or if you really want to go into the workforce. Technology. You know, right now we know we're, um, you know, we're advancing. there's an evolution of technology and and we're advanced at a rapid pace. So just to make sure these students leaving high schools have the fundamental basics that unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they're not really getting into high school. So that's important. And then the last one for me is uh, social wellness and well-being. You know, I think right now that's something that uh, historically we've taken for granted, but just given what we've been through the past two years with the COVID, you know, to kind of do a check-in, a, uh, a self-assessment of kind of where you are and, and really kind of help students navigate uh, these very difficult waters. So those are the four things that we're trying to work on. And again, I think by presenting some of these to, uh, you know, pre-college students, I think would help them really kind of make those decisions. And, and for us, selfishly, it, it develops a bit of a pipeline. But even if they don't kind of decide to matriculate on roll with us, you know, I think it's going to give them a nice
1: guide to the rest of their professional careers. Absolutely. So from a like gap analysis almost, what what is it going to take for higher ed to get from where it is today to this environment that's more, more uh, uh, inclusive, more accessible, more aligned with diverse needs of diverse learners, and, and frankly, more collaborative, again, between the subject matter experts at the faculty level and the subject matter experts that, you know, are, are more aligned with how to serve students in new and in, in, in different ways.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one thing that helps our conversations like the one we're having uh, today, you know, I, I think that's really important to keep uh, having uh, leaders kind of champion this cause. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think, um, you know, that ivory tower menta- mentality should, should no longer exist. You know, I think um, you know it's 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 a new day and age, and again, it, it's a different student population, and you know, I think what's going to really drive us to this ultimately is going to be uh, revenue and, and 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 lost revenue and people. That's going to kind of have people finally waking up, saying, "Yeah, you know what we're currently doing is not working," and and it's <laughs> unfortunate that's going to um, you know lead to uh, you know some really tough decisions being made at institutions. But, you know, I, I do think, you know, I would hope that we can kind of get ahead of this and really, um, you know, work in tandem with the changes that we're seeing in society and our environment and and and, and be able to pivot. And, and really, that's an overly used word, especially now during the pandemic, be able to pivot to be able to support uh, a, a greater number of students. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've, again, I've been around for a long time. I think it's going to really take a um, a seismic shift in, you know, uh, the P&L for us to kind of really start to make some of these tough decisions. But having said that, I mean, I'll continue, uh, you know, pressing this charge and people that I've talked to and developing these coalitions to kind of really um, be very uh, thoughtful, strategic as how we move forward as a university.
1: So what advice would you share with you know, for continuing ed leaders and main campus leaders that are trying to figure out how to collaborate better with one another. Now that you have sort of, I guess, uh, a foot on, on both sides of the aisle.
2: Dialogue, you know, dialogue, you know, we can't continue to work in these, uh, these silos, you know, being at such a large university like Drexel University for me, you know, 30,000 plus students, you know, 12, 13 colleges and schools. Um, you know, I think, you um, Dialogues will be very important, you know, as opposed to seeing each other as competition. You know, we're all in it for the same reason and we have the same ultimate goals in place. Um, You know, for someone like me to be able to talk with the business school or be able to talk with the uh, School of Computing and Informatics or even engineering and some of the other schools to let them know that, you know, these are very different and unique markets. And, And again, it's not one trying to overtake a space that you thrived in but it's really being able to create the best product that's going to address the needs of those uh, particular students, particularly in the continuing education space and a uh, school of professional studies can really do that at a high level. You know, we, you know, I'm not going to do a great job teaching a student how to be a great engineer. And cause I leave that, you know, roll up to the uh, school of college of engineering, but for us, you know, there there's a niche for students who, you know, maybe someone who is working in the engineering field, and they want to come back and complete their degree. You know, there's a place in a school of professional studies to help them do that at a very high level. So I think collaboration and, and discussion is going to be key. And we just need to continue and, and, kind, of, and kind of leave behind those, um, those, um, those false sense of, um, you, know, uh, you know, these programs aren't good enough. You know, again, that ivory tower mentality of, you know, schools of professional studies can't provide X, Y, and Z, when in fact we could, it's just for a different population.
1: Absolutely. Well, Brian, I mean, that pretty much does it on my end. And, you know, one thing I'll ask you is as we close, which is a little bit off topic, but you'll forgive me. Folks are starting to travel again. Folks are starting to go to conferences all over the place. What's the go-to restaurant for you in Philadelphia?
2: <laughs> the go-to restaurant for me in Philadelphia. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that that's very good. You know, for me, you know, I'm a bit, um, I guess, biased, you know, being at Drexel University. I'm in, a, I'm in a wonderful city with a lot of great restaurants, but I keep it very local, you know. But when I'm trying to have a, when I try to take some uh, colleagues out, maybe they visit us or something, it's a uh, White Dog Cafe. It's, uh, it's, um, it's on a uh, campus at the University of Pennsylvania. I think it's an outstanding restaurant. Uh, so that's one of my go-to places uh, where I am. But having said that, I mean, there's a ton of great restaurants in Philadelphia. And the other thing too, I mean, if you come to Philadelphia, you know, you, you got to get a cheesesteak. So my go-to cheesesteak place, just so you know, is Jim's Cheesesteak on South Street. So if anyone's listening, right. now, you, you definitely want to check out Jim's Cheesesteak. But if you want a nice sit down uh, restaurant, uh, uh, White Dog Cafe is excellent.
1: All right, White Dog Cafe and, uh, and Jim's cheese. Thank you so much, Brian. <laughs> appreciate you, man. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I appreciate you.
0: This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, Modern Campus supports every corner of the modern institution, from continuing and workforce education, to student affairs, to the registrar's office, to marketing and IT. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of the modern learner, visit ModernCampus.com. That's ModernCampus.com.